there's a picture of Times Square at night that's very familiar to everyone. And next to it, a picture from the top of Whiteface Mountain uh, in the Adirondacks outside Lake Placid that doesn't have a building. It's, it's 50 square miles in the photo and doesn't have a building in it. And the caption underneath the left one says, I don't live in New York. And on the, underneath the right one, it says, I live in New York. The Big Apple. Whether you've been there or not, you probably have an image of New York in your mind. Skyscrapers in Central Park, packed subways and sidewalks, Times Square and plenty of noise, art and food all around. New York City looms large in the imaginations of people all over the world as a beacon of culture, immigration, finance and so much more. But like all cities, New York City is part of a larger context. It impacts and is impacted by the states around it. Compared to most other American cities, the Big Apple plays an outsized role in both state and federal politics. But it still must work within the state it's a part of, and that's a state many of us actually know very little about. Welcome back to The Ballpark, a podcast from the failing United States Center of the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the LSE US Center's USAP blog. And I'm Alina Ganatra, podcast producer here at The Ballpark. you figured out by now that we're talking about New York today, we're not only going to talk about the big city. Most people know about Wall Street, but the main streets all over New York State get far less media attention. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Empire State as a whole, and highlight the differences between the city that never sleeps and the rest of this surprisingly rural state. Back in November 2019, we interviewed Marissa Largo, who was then the director of New York City Department of City Planning. That interview helped inspire us to take a more in-depth look at New York State, because we were curious about how the state and city interact. I think many of us feel like we know about New York via popular culture and TV, but we realized we really had no idea about what the rest of New York is like. Is it very rural or is it urbanized? Is it politically homogenous or are there any divisive issues within the state? As you'll hear, New York is just as varied and interesting as every other state in the Union, with its own unique quirks, challenges and issues. But let's start with some basic info about New York before we dive in. As of 2020, the state was home to just over 20 million people, with nearly 9 million in New York City. New York City has the highest population density of any American city, with over 27,000 people living in each square mile. New York City is diverse as well, and visitors may hear one of 800 languages while riding the subway, which extends 100 miles longer than the state's main highway. Politically, New York is one of democratic trifectas in the U.S., like California, which we discussed in our last episode. The Democrats having control of the governorship, state assembly, and state senate is a recent development in the state's history, with some interesting political side effects. But you'll hear more on that later. The state has some well-known U.S. senators, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the U.S. Senate, and Kirsten Gillibrand, a former 2020 presidential candidate. New York State is home to some impressive parks, too. This includes Niagara Falls State Park, the oldest in the U.S., as well as Adirondack Park, which is larger than Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, Glacier, and Olympic Parks combined. However, if you want some greenery, look no further than New York City's Central Park, which required more gunpowder to landscape than was used in the Battle of Gettysburg. And a couple more fun facts. New York State's flower is the rose, its capital is in Albany, and it's got a great state motto, Excelsior! Now that we've given an overview of the state, let's take a virtual road trip. It's really interesting because England and New York State are very similar in that they have one large urban area and kind of several 
larger cities, but certainly not the size that a London or New York City would be. And then this glorious rural countryside in between. For this episode, we wanted to talk to someone who lives in upstate New York and can tell us what the dynamic between the state and the city is really like. I'm David Little. I'm the executive director of the Rural Schools Association of New York State. And that also makes me the director of the Rural Schools Program at Cornell University. David Little also worked for 17 years in the New York State Legislature, working as a legal counsel for 10 years in the Assembly and seven in the State Senate. And just a quick note, we spoke to David at the beginning of 2020. New York State has had the largest outward migration of population of any state in the Union over the past decade. According to them, we've lost a million point four people in that time period. The upstate area, what we call upstate, which would be north of New York City, is getting more and more rural all the time. Glorious in terms of the topography. You have the Finger Lakes, the Adirondacks, the Catskill Mountains, really wonderful geographic areas and recreational areas, but becoming more and more difficult economically for residents to survive there. It's interesting, our electronic newspaper, it's called RSA Today, there's a picture of Times Square at night that's very familiar to everyone. And next to it, a picture from the top of Whiteface Mountain uh, in the Adirondacks outside Lake Placid that doesn't have a building. It's, it's 50 square miles in the photo and doesn't have a building in it. And the caption underneath the left one says, I don't live in New York. And on the, underneath the right one, it says, I live in New York. So there's, um, there's a tremendous divergence. New York State geographically is one of the most rural states that we have. And outside of New York City, we have um, very few people per square mile outside of what we call the Big Five, which is uh, New York City, Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, and Buffalo. And they're almost in a straight line across the middle of the state. Above that line and below that line is, is very rural indeed. We also asked David Little to give us a quick overview of New York's politics and government which the Democratic Party took full control of in 2019. The most recent dynamic in New York state politics of late has been uh, the Democratic Party taking control of our state Senate for years and years, more, many more than 20 years. We've had the circumstance where the two houses of our state legislature were governed by one by the Republican Party in the Senate and the Democrats controlled the assembly. And Uh, Now, with the Democrats having taken control of both houses of the legislature, we now have one party controlling all of state government. This is a new phenomenon to us. The last time it happened was during the Nelson Rockefeller years back in the 70s, early 70s. And so it's a new day in Albany, which is really new to most of the people who work there and most of the people who serve there, uh, simply because formerly, most monarchies in the world had a bigger turnover rate than the New York State Legislature. They have a tremendous incumbency program, and once you've become, say, a state senator, it's a large enough geographic area that there really is no one who is known throughout that area besides the incumbent. And so there hasn't been much turnover over the years. Um, And now, uh, the last couple of years, dealing with this new political phenomenon there, we've seen breaks within the Democratic Party. And that's something that's new to them. Um, Usually they have had a common agenda within the Democrats in each house and tried to push that agenda 
Now they're being pushed by different factions within their own party, and that has proven recently difficult for them. We should note that 2021 has seen a significant change to New York State's leadership. Democrat Andrew Cuomo's decade-long tenure as governor of the state came to an end with his resignation following allegations of sexual harassment. He was replaced by his lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, at the end of August 2021. Well, look, for all that New York City appears to the outside world, perhaps as a monolith, we are a city of neighborhoods, many, many neighborhoods, each of which is unique, dynamic, and changing. That's Marissa Largo, who, when she spoke to us in November 2019, was the director of New York City Department of City Planning and chair of the City Planning Commission. She discussed the challenges of planning and running a very dynamic city like New York. What I've found is that we as human beings tend to be tremendously conservative when it comes to our homes. We don't like change. Um, And it's ironic that many of those who are opposed to new development in New York City today were the gentrifiers of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that's been true throughout New York's history. Um, But we can't stop time. When the Dutch first came to New York, they upended a thriving Native American Indian colony. And then along came the British, and they changed the built context from the beautiful Dutch buildings that had been there. Um, A great example of the challenges that we face is a neighborhood known as El Barrio, or Spanish Harlem. In my youth, it was home to New York City's large Puerto Rican community. It was buzzing with Latin music, with families, with Puerto Rican food. And today, El Barrio is still largely Hispanic, but there is an increasing Asian population, a non-Hispanic white population. And if we look backwards, Spanish Harlem had been full of Germans and Scandinavians. If you had gone there in 1917, it would have been defined by the Eastern European Jews. In the late 1800s, Italians were the dominant ethnicity. We're the city that never sleeps, but we're also the city that never stands still. So the challenge is you have to navigate constituencies. We have 51 city council members. We have the mayor. We have vocal advocates, be they housers or business um, groups, open space advocates, transportation, alternate transportation gurus. Um, All of this is actually healthy for a dynamic city to have this play of forces. But the challenge for city planning is for the Department of City Planning is we have to balance hyper-local neighborhood concerns with important citywide needs. Um, Everyone wants their garbage picked up and handled. No one wants the Department of Sanitation's garage in their neighborhood. And this is even true when it comes to housing. Recently, a citywide elected official speaking to a business group asked three simple questions. How many of you in the room would agree that affordable housing is a crisis in our city? Practically every hand went up. His next question was, would you agree that as part of the solution, we have to build more affordable housing? Just about every hand went up. And the next one was, which of you would want a high-rise affordable housing tower next to your room? And there were only a few brave souls of us who raised our hand. 
Marisa Lago had some important insights into the relationship between the state and city government, which has a huge budget and a lot of people to please. At its most basic level, New York State controls taxes, whether they be income, business, or real property taxes. We can't raise or lower taxes in the city on our own. The state also controls transportation. I would guess that many folks would not be aware that New York City's vaunted subway system and bus lines are actually controlled by the state. Now, on the other hand, what the city government itself controls is our schools, our police department and our first responders, our parks, our streets, and what's especially important for me, our land use controls. Um, what I've found is that what a city controls, it generally does pretty well. Uh, for example, affordable housing, which is Mayor de Blasio's signature program, but also Vision Zero to reduce traffic fatalities and the institution of free pre-K for all four-year-olds, which is now being extended to three-year-olds. On the other hand, we'll turn to transportation. We look at London's Crossrail and we're green with envy. Um, recently, New York City opened, or I should say New York State, which controls the subways, opened three stops on the Second Avenue subway, a two-mile stretch of track, and reported to be the world's most expensive per kilometer. That pales in comparison to Crossrail, and planning or the first discussion of the Second Avenue subway started in 1920. <laughs> Today we think of New York as a busy, dynamic cultural capital, but it wasn't always this way. In the 1970s, the city experienced deindustrialization, economic recession, and fiscal crisis, and gained a reputation for crime and social disorder. In 1978, incoming Mayor Ed Koch faced a grim picture. If you look at what Mayor Koch's big challenge was, the city was close to bankrupt. We were desperate for any construction, and we were losing, we were hemorrhaging jobs and residents to the New Jersey and Long Island suburbs. When the city was at its nadir, rural New York State helped it stay afloat, but now these fortunes have been reversed. Here's David Little again on his time in Albany, the state capital during that period. I worked uh, as legal counsel in the state legislature for 17 years before moving directly into the educational community. And, and when I first arrived in Albany in, in 1983, we had just gone through the period where New York City um, it's a municipality and so can't actually declare bankruptcy, but its fiscal circumstances were so dire that the media portrayed it um, as New York City's pending bankruptcy. And they were able to uh, be pulled out of that challenge by the, the vitality of the upstate rural economy, which at that time, uh, in addition to its other businesses, had 17 million acres in agricultural production. Now, there are 7 million acres in agricultural production in, in upstate New York. And although New York City is, in fact, uh, still an economic engine, the rural areas are no longer able to, to carry their own weight. And so what we've been asking is for New York City to return the favor to, to infuse the upstate economy and particularly the rural economy with a comprehensive economic development plan to try and pull it out so that it can regain uh, its former status as well, repeated any number of times in that debate by legislators, uh, upstate legislators, that they should simply throw their money in the Hudson River because that was an easier delivery system, more direct delivery system to get it to the city. 
And now we have exactly the reverse. One of the first bills um, as legal counsel in the legislature that I ever drafted was a bill to separate uh, New York into North and South New York in the same way that we have a North and South Dakota or the Carolinas. And the reason for that was because upstate New York was getting very tired of paying for the social programs needed to sustain New York City, which had a tremendously impoverished residence. The exact reverse has taken place now. We've, we've come around 180 degrees now to the fact that the city uh, is comparatively wealthy, uh, is thriving economically for the time being, and has for an extended period of time. And yet we've seen this tremendous decline in the rest of the state, and we haven't yet uh, had the political will to use state resources to address that. It's so what causes reversal of fortunes between the city and the state? Well, I think that the problem goes back um, 10 years, and uh, we refer to it as the Great Recession. It was the, the longest recession, and we had a real outward migration of businesses and then the people following those businesses. So um, trying to revitalize our rural areas has been of paramount importance to, to anyone north of what we call the Tappan Zee Bridge, which is now referred to as the Mario Cuomo Bridge, um, which is the bridge between New York City and the rest of the state. So as businesses and the uh, left and the economy declined, we've been searching for both an economic development policy in, uh, in our rural areas and then an equitable way to fund our schools so that, so that they're able to function despite the loss of both political power and influence in that funding process that happens every year in the state budget. David Little also talked to us about the impact this inequality in state funding has had on the emerging education gap between New York City and New York State. Obviously, you can't continue to spend state reserves, and we rely so heavily on local taxation, particularly to run our schools, that it has created a tremendous diversity between uh, what children that are raised in affluent suburbs or even in the urban areas are afforded in terms of their curriculum and a minimal curriculum that's been able to be afforded uh, in our rural areas. The problem from the state's perspective in recognizing the issue has been that in our rural schools, we graduate almost all of our students. Uh, it's well over 90%. And so they think you're graduating everybody. Why would we consider that to be a crisis when we have schools uh, city school systems like Buffalo and Rochester that struggle to graduate half of their students. Well, the problem is that post-graduation, those rural students have had so narrow a curriculum that they have no context to put college-level coursework into. Um, they have to take remedial courses at their own expense when they begin college. And so uh, we have a tremendous dropout rate. Many of our students never uh, even receive a two-year degree or certification past high school. And so um, we're trying to rectify that. And honestly, uh, at this point in our, the history of our state's economy, 
will largely rely on uh, the fact that New York City is still a growing economy and is a strong economy to be able to try and provide some financial incentives to rebuild that rural community back up again. Outside of public education, other issues divide New York City and the states. For example, gun ownership and recreational cannabis legislation, which was being debated in early 2020 when we spoke to David Little. The rest of the state politically is probably a much more conservative state. I know that they differ greatly on the issue of gun ownership. New York City has very restrictive gun laws, and New York State, in fact, largely because of those city legislators, has the most restrictive gun laws in the nation. There seems to be a battle where that faction of government continues to try and further restrict gun ownership, whereas it's resisted by folks who have much more of a history with having guns in the home, many more hunters in the rural areas, obviously, that type of thing. And so you have a different approach to the two on that issue. The legalization of recreational marijuana use is currently being debated in our state legislature. And I think you would typically find that New York City and the rural areas of New York would diverge in their approach to that issue as well. So so I think that there are a good number of issues where there seems to be a divergence in in people's perception and people's approach to different issues. New Yorkers seem to be united on key issues, though, including the importance of public education and the need for a more equitable distribution of the state's resources. I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find a resident of New York State who didn't agree that public education is the state's highest priority. That, I think, we agree upon. New York State provides, in total spending per student, twice the national average. And, you know, our governor is, is want to say that, you know, how much more could we possibly spend on this, given the fact that we spend close to $70 billion in New York State in total. But the way that we distribute that money always ranks last in terms of the equitable position in which it funds its public educational system. Most states in the United States fund their public educational system about two-thirds by the state and one-third by local taxpayers, meaning that the state provides for all of the basics. You can provide a sound basic education, which is the state constitutional requirement of virtually every state in the union. The problem, of course, is that in New York State, the state only provides roughly a third of the funding and relies on local municipalities and local school districts to provide two-thirds of that funding. So you have a tremendous disparity between rich and poor communities and what they're able to afford for the education of their students. The state distribution system of their state aid doesn't adequately assess how much a community can provide and offset that amount with a sufficient amount of state aid. We've done everything with our state aid formula in the past decade except actually use it. We have a thing called Save Harmless, which is if you would get under the formula less money next year than you got last year, then we will give you what you got last year. And over half of the school districts in New York State are on Save Harmless, meaning our funding formula doesn't even apply to more than half of the districts that we have. And then once though you have those districts, the formula hasn't been adjusted in over a dozen years to adjust for increased poverty 
or for the influx of English language learners that we have in many of our communities and other impacts such as sparsity. And so you really have no relationship to the funding formula and how wealthy a community might be able to provide funding for its schools. But of course, there's disagreement about how best to achieve this for a more equitable and efficient distribution of the state's resources. New York City doesn't, in fact, have a property tax. And the rest of the state's public educational system is based on that property tax. They all do have a property tax. In fact, that's capped by the state. We have what we call the tax cap, um, which means that you have to get a supermajority of voters in every community in New York State outside of New York City in order to raise taxes above the consumer price index. So it's a very low rate that schools are able to tax themselves, and that makes them very much beholden to the state to provide an, a sufficient amount of state aid, particularly for rural communities in New York. They've had the wick of the candle cut at both ends because the state aid formula on one end doesn't sufficiently fund them, and the, the loss of their local economy has given them less to tax. And even if they wanted to tax at a higher rate, and even if their community would uh, think that that was appropriate, they would hesitate because they know that they would be driving the last few remaining residents and businesses out of their district. The vast majority of members of the state assembly are from the Democratic Party, and the vast majority of them are from urban areas. It's more evenly split along senatorial lines because the Senate had previously been controlled by Republicans who were largely from Long Island and the rural areas of upstate New York. So you had one party kind of defending one demographic of resident and the other party defending the other demographic in, in a different house. And together they would form districts that continued that approach. Well, now that one house continues all, we have yet to see how that plays out in terms of a divergence of opinion. But I will tell you that in my world, the world of public education, for my entire career, the educational community has been unified in saying that we need an adequate and equitable way to fund public education. Most recently, and perhaps largely because of that split between urban and rural legislators, we've seen a divergence of opinion playing out in the way that we will distribute aid. One of them saying the funding formula is broken. But before we fix it, we need to fully fund it as our highest court dictated. Then we need to assess whether or not it's adequate for everybody. And then we have a different faction uh, within public education who says, why would you fund a system that you know is broken? We need to fix it first. And there are very pragmatic reasons for that schism because the existing formula counts everything per student which means that the increases in enrollment in New York City will see tremendous increases in funding if we fund the formula without fixing it. Everyone else in the state will lose. And so they're seeking to fix the formula and adjust not only per student, but adjust for the tremendously increased poverty over the last decade and try and ameliorate the things that are attended to poverty like increased student mental health needs and English language learning programs that are needed for those lower income people who have immigrated into New York State and are having a difficult time with the curriculum because they haven't yet mastered the language. 
Back in New York City, Marissa Largo talked about how city planning can be used to address inequality. Well, first, I have to start out by saying that fighting inequality takes a whole of government, a whole of society approach. As important as I think planning is, it is but one, one element. But I can give you a few examples of what we've done in New York City. The first is mandatory inclusionary housing, MIH. This is a powerful zoning tool adopted under Mayor de Blasio's watch and with his leadership. It requires that any property that is granted the approval to produce significantly more housing than had been allowed before has to set aside a minimum of 20% of the housing as permanent affordability. Um, in the past, many of our housing programs had temporal affordabilities, and so we're seeing programs from the 1970s with a 50-year time frame beginning to roll off. Um, I can give a real-world example of how MIH works um, in a high-income neighborhood. There is a largely vacant full block just south of Hudson Yards. Now, Hudson Yards on Manhattan's west side is in a broader neighborhood where the median household income is about 80,000 pounds. That's nearly 70% higher than the citywide median income. In 2012, the city upzoned land that was zoned for manufacturing, manufacturing that had long since left, to allow the construction of housing. 1,200 units of housing, 300 of which have to be permanently affordable. And there was no discretionary government subsidy. This was the private market cross-financing the production of affordable housing. There's another way that planning helps address inequality, and this is in lower-income neighborhoods where one can't harness the market forces because the housing that gets constructed generally requires subsidy. There, we use place-based investments. The de Blasio administration has successfully completed six comprehensive neighborhood plans. Each plan follows years of engagement with local stakeholders, community residents, hospitals and other major institutions, elected officials, to find out what the community's vision for itself is. And after these years of planning, which involves not just the Department of City Planning, but departments of transportation, of health, of parks, the library systems, we have proposed rezonings that will generate 22,000 new homes, and again, 6,500 of them permanently affordable. But as important as the new housing is the fact that as part of the rezoning, there are significant investments into these communities, communities that had seen decades of disinvestment. In these six neighborhoods, the city is investing over 775 billion pounds. And this investment is tangible. You're seeing parks that had grown into a state of disrepair refurbished. You're seeing new schools. You're seeing improved sidewalks. One that is especially of interest to me, we are seeing in one of the neighborhoods an elevator providing access to a subway line that is three stories up in the air. These are victories for equity. We can see from what both Marisa Lago and David Little have told us, what effects New York City can have a knock-on for the rest of the state, and vice versa. If one prospers, the other often declines. And tackling inequality in all parts of a state can take years of cooperation and negotiation. Let's finish things up with David Little's description of New York politics and its potential future. It's dynamic. Uh, politics in, in New York State is 
uh, a matter of a single house, um, a single party determining within itself the direction that it's going to take. You know, while people say that that all politics are local, I would say that New York State uh, is very much divergent between its urban and rural areas in terms of political composition. Our governor in the last election, I don't believe, won more than one county north of New York City. And yet the tremendous population on Long Island, which is south of New York City, and then the city itself and the suburbs around it, has significant enough population to be able to drive the election. So uh, I would say if I were going to characterize the future of New York state politics, it would be urban centric. That's all the time we have for New York State today. In the next episode of The Ballpark, we're heading south to New Mississippi to look at mass incarceration. Thanks so much for joining us at The Ballpark for our look into the politics of the Empire State. Thanks to Marisa Lago and David Little. This episode of The Ballpark was produced by Michaela Herman, Alina Ganatra, and Chris Gilson. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and like lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>